From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I am talking again with Ross Benish, author of the book Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. The squeaky wheel gets the oil, right? The person who's the most loud and brash gets a lot of attention now in a way that they used to be laughed out of the room. It's harder to keep fringe candidates at bay, though, too. You know, you, you had those in the past, but there was more regulation around campaign finance. The parties were stronger. Just a lot of factors contributing to a point where we're amusing ourselves to death in our politics. It, it, it's the worst at the national level. Generally, it's better at the local level. The local level is getting bad, too, when you see Bruce Bostelman on the floor talking about furries. And I think we may have reached a point in no return once that happens. Brennish reflects on his book's central argument and assesses how Nebraska's Republican stronghold is holding up in what seems to be a rocky 2022 full of scandals and infighting for the party. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Riverside Chats relies on your listener support and the best way to ensure continued coverage of arts, ideas, politics, all the local stuff that you listen to this show for is by making a sustaining monthly donation of $1, $5, or whatever you can afford. What, what, do, we, what do you think this show is worth? We got over 100 episodes in our backlog. We're aiming to make a lot more. We want to keep the show at the quality that you expect and, in fact, to improve it to go beyond what you expect. So please consider becoming a supporter by clicking on the link in the show notes for this episode. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Ross Benish, who wrote the 2021 book, Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold, in which he diagnoses a gradual shift in the types of candidates we elect to our state legislature and the U.S. Congress. He came to the show last year to discuss the cultural landscape of highly loyal GOP voters, and this time he's here to assess just how strong that Republican stronghold is in what appears to be a 2022 rock with scandals, resignations, infighting, dark money, and the specter of Donald Trump. Here is our conversation. When you were on the show last year, uh, you laid out a case for how extreme polarization is essentially a roadblock to real conversations, debate of ideas, and it produces a context for one-party rule. So just for people who maybe haven't heard the last episode when you were on, what is it that you find uh, problematic about one-party rule and sort of this polarized, uh, the polarization that leads to it, which in Nebraska more or less means Republican power? Well, with one-party rule, it allows the party that's in power to kind of do whatever they want. There's not many repercussions. They don't have to be sane. Uh, They don't have to necessarily follow laws. They get away with some ridiculous behavior that would be harder for them to get away with if there was real competition. And in Nebraska, that's been lunacy in the Republican Party. I live in New York and Governor Cuomo uh, was ousted in a very public way. And then now our lieutenant governor is facing bribery charges from the Democratic Party because we're a state where the Democratic Party controls everything. So I really see these just ridiculous things playing out within both parties where I live and in the middle of America where every day I open the World Herald website, I see another just asinine thing that a local Republican's done. Functionally, then, also, it seems to me that you have sort of a lack of debate because a lot of the times there may be some disputes between party members, but a lot more often it's sort of like you can pretty much assume how people will vote on any given measure based on their party affiliation. So, like, you know, I think one of the the romanticized idea anyway of the multi-party system is that something comes from the conflict between them. I'm not sure that I really see that happening. Uh, well, not anymore, because you just put your head down and turn on your phone and 
get a lot of opinions of people who agree with you and never have to engage with the outside world. But that was the ideal. There was, you know, relative bipartisanship in Nebraska when, when I was a kid. So maybe maybe there's a chance it comes back. I don't know. But in 2022, so like the conventional wisdom is that this is going to be a rough year for Democrats in general. Republicans, particularly in Nebraska, you would think might be having this great, relatively easy year. But from what I can tell, that's not quite panning out in terms of the actual people running for things and the types of campaigns that they're having or just the experiences they're having in the legislature. At the time of recording this, which is just before our primary, gubernatorial candidate Charles Herbster has been accused of several women of sexual misconduct, which in no way seemed to deter Donald Trump from holding a rally for him the following week. Uh, that probably encouraged Donald Trump to hold a rally well, for yeah. him. Well, yeah. So like Trump himself, obviously, he's, he's been accused and sometimes even bragged yeah. about sexual assault. And it reminds me, I think we talked about this last time even, uh, this sort of haunting moment for me in American politics was when Roy Moore was a Senate candidate in Alabama in 2017. He was accused of sexual misconduct with minors. And then President Trump gave a full endorsement of him right after that and said, it's better to have someone like him in the government than a Democrat. That sums up to me just sort of this nihilism at the core of polarized politics. And it really makes it difficult for me when I think about Nebraska now to know what to do when people like Governor Ricketts or Congressman Bacon are quick to overlook similar allegations against Trump, but are really outraged when they hear them about Herbster and they demand that Herbster drops out. Do voters have a clear sense of like, is there a consistency to the Republican expectations for their candidates? Unfortunately, I I don't think this controversy is going to matter too much at the ballot box. I mean, and there's many people beyond Herbster, you know, uh, Senator Groney uh, had to resign for taking inappropriate pictures of um, an aide. Fortenberry was just convicted of uh, illegally taking foreign contributions. Bruce Bostelman from Brainerd, where I'm from, uh, made the most ridiculous speech in the history of the Nebraska legislature about furries overtaking schools and kids dressing up like cats and pooping in litter boxes. And then Omaha native Ginny Thomas was texting with Trump's staff in trying to overthrow the election. All those things you think would combine to uh, drive people away from the Republican Party, but that doesn't seem like it's happening in the middle of the country. But I don't, I don't think there's any consistency with how the candidates behave or even what they stand for, other than they want tax cuts, deregulation of business, and uh, you know they want to dabble in the, whatever the latest culture war thing is. Yeah. So I kind of want to go through those examples sort of one by one, because I think a lot of them are insights into sort of bigger structural problems with our political identities and polarized climate. So let's talk about Graney then. Uh, Mike Graney, uh, he resigned after allegations related to inappropriate pictures being taken without knowledge. And there, there was an investigation that uh, so I have here. They, they concluded that it was wholly unprofessional, inappropriate, but did not constitute unlawful discrimination or harassment. And so Graney was asked about this afterward, and he said he regrets his decision to resign. Basically, he feels like a victim in this whole situation, Uh, which, in other words, it sounds like he feels like there was good reason to expect limited or non-existent accountability for being wholly unprofessional and inappropriate. It's hard to say that he's necessarily wrong about that instinct, right? The, The broader issue I see here is if you're in the right party, there doesn't seem to be much of a push for accountability when you do something wrong. Like, What's the root of that? The party wants to keep the people they have in office at all costs, no matter how terrible they are. And uh, when you're in a, like in rural Nebraska, or center of Nebraska, where, where Grony is, um, you know, the Republicans going to win in a landslide uh, and uh, they don't want to give that up. It's 
ridiculous what he got away with and now that he paints himself as a victim but he's gonna ride that as much as he can and, and probably receive limited pushback within his own district because it is so heavily partisanized in his favor you'll get a lot of pushback with throughout the state and especially from the press and people online but um from constituents in that area if he ran against the democrat he'd probably win again uh which is sad well, yeah, I mean, like, it's it's kind of the same idea of Trump talking about Roy Moore, which is right. Like, I'd rather have uh, a Republican who maybe doesn't break the law, but is inappropriate, unprofessional, because that's better than any kind of general Democrat. Oh, yeah. I, I, I even see this at the national level with um, I, I've seen things with like Fox News where they'll basically side with Putin over a Democrat, uh, you know, like anything, even a even a foreign dictator. Um, is viewed more favorably than the opposing party within their own country. And that's just extreme thinking. Well, like, do, do they actually think that, though? Or is that just because it's easier to be hyperbolic and extreme when certain yeah, voters Yeah, I guess I should say it. it's, it's extreme messaging, but it, it hits some people. Well, what's the... Why, why do they... Why, I guess... It's hard for me sometimes to think about, like, how different is that from what it's been in the past? My understanding is kind of the contemporary root of a lot of this rhetoric is uh, Gingrich and wedge politics. Is that what you would say sort of started this trend? Yeah, I mean, it's not the worst it's ever been historically. Like back in the Civil War days, people fought on the floor. And, and even um, Nebraska legislature, there were there are a few times that there were fisticuffs thrown, uh, you know, over 100 years ago. So it, it's probably not the worst it's been. But Gosh, yeah, it's definitely the worst it's been uh, in modern times. And Gingrich is absolutely instrumental in that. But not just Gingrich. Um, I, I think the popularity of fringe like television radio personas is a big root of that. There wasn't the equivalent of like Rush Limbaugh in the 80s. And now there's many, many Rush Limbaugh's. And uh, they they have a lot of influence so Rush Limbaugh, in some sense, understood that there was, I guess, an opening in the cultural, I don't know, there was a hunger, I guess, for this kind of sort of extreme, volatile, uh, sort of just like vitriol. Uh, and the politicians eventually decided that they could sort of utilize that as well. But it, it is interesting that, I mean, like, ultimately, the, the, there's a culpability in people using extreme rhetoric, but the fact that it lands with so many people uh, and does seem to move them, does seem to mobilize them. It's well, it's become more of an entertainment product over time, ever since uh, Nixon debated JFK and you had the, the selling of the president and it, you know, it was more about a TV product than a set of ideals that were argued you know we're so far removed from the uh douglas and and lincoln debates it's you know an entertainment product that people vote on for so many so in that sense then it's sort of like if it's your entertainment process or it's your your entertainment product that you sort of like to watch every so often like you know it's like wrestling or whatever there's going to be the good guy and the bad guy and that's that's kind of the mentality for politics and how the world ultimately gets run now i unfortunately uh that, that seems to be a, a more common way of looking at it than it used to be. Even on the um, online news shows or, or cable news shows about this, the way they use music for dramatic effect um, when they're talking about someone from a opposing party is very pro wrestling-like or very soap opera-like to build melodrama. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Ross Benish, author of Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. 
We're talking about the rocky start to 2022 for the GOP here in Nebraska, which has been full of scandals. What do you think? Is Nebraska's Republican stronghold losing its firm footing? Is that a possibility? Could that ever even happen? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which may be featured on one of our upcoming shows. Is this because we like we just want to be entertained? And so ultimately, even if something is sort of like boring and educational, we're just a little bit more drawn to the, the big, goofy, dramatic telling? The, uh, the squeaky wheel gets the oil, right? The, the person who's the most loud and brash gets a lot of attention now in a way that they used to be laughed out of the room. Um, but the, there's also, um, it's harder to keep fringe candidates at bay, though, too. You know, you, you had those in the past, but there was more regulation about campaign finance. Um, the parties were stronger. You know, like someone like Trump wouldn't have really gone far. You know, they would have, they would have been shut down. They wouldn't have had all these peripheral um, media outlets that they could weaponize for their own purpose. You know, those didn't exist because the, the media was more centralized too. So just a lot of factors um, contributing to a point where we're amusing ourselves to death uh, in our politics. It, it, it's the worst at the national level. Generally, it's better at the local level, but local level is getting bad too when you see you know Bruce Bostelman on the floor talking about furries. And I think we may have reached a point in no return once that happens. Well, it's, yeah, so I want, I want to sort of build up to that. But like another local uh, example of this was uh, Douglas, County, Douglas County attorney Don Klein recently felt that he had been unfairly criticized by the Nebraska Democratic Party in his decision not to press charges against Jake Gardner for fatally shooting James Skurlock. And there was a lot of outcry for Klein's decision there. He ultimately referred the case to a grand jury, which found four criminal charges. And then Klein decided at this point to publicly become Republican in what was this sort of big party, essentially. It was this big celebration that was attended by Ricketts, uh, party chairman Dan Welch, Senator Deb Fisher, Congressman Bacon. And the optics of it, to me, suggested this sort of gleeful polarization now of the judiciary, where we've kind of had that in the other branches. There was at least this pretense that the judiciary was maybe a little, a little bit less overtly political, but it, that seems to be maybe going as well when we have this massive uh, celebration of the county attorney becoming moving from one party to the other. And sort of like the implication there to me is now it seems like, okay, we have two different forms of of rule of law. There's Republican rule of law and Democratic rule of law. And whichever party you belong to dictates which one you find legitimate or illegitimate, which seems problematic, especially uh, to have essentially like the parties, these two big international fundraising machines now dictating whether a law is legitimate or not, uh, literally from the judiciary, not from Congress. That seems like it's, it's setting us up for a lot more kinds of uh, problems as far as polarization and just fracturing of society. Do you think that's a fair uh, statement? I think that's a fair statement. It sets up some weird differences between states, too, depending on which uh, party controls a, a particular state's judicial system. Um, like just looking at the um, like the moral panic that um, you know some jurists in Nebraska have over legal marijuana, and you you know you can walk in over the Colorado border and it doesn't matter at all. It's, it's very strange. And that's coming for many more things aside from just marijuana and gambling. It's probably going to happen with abortion rights. Um, you know, that's a little speculative, but depending on how this um, session goes in the Supreme Court, we may have an instance where down the road where one state's going to be operating in a vastly set of different laws than 
is a neighboring state and that's tough to hold society together when um there is no you know common law well so i guess this this gets back to kind of a question i had which is there's the rhetoric that's extreme that, you know, if you're a Republican, then Democrats are evil. They want to destroy the world, yada, yada, yada. Is there like a sense of accountability for fracturing the society for like this this idea that, you know, people talk sort of casually now like, oh, it feels like we're moving toward a civil war. And it's just, you know, like when, when we get to a point where that's kind of a normal thing to say or people just make casual jokes about it. Do, do you think anyone feels bad about like the Rush Limbaugh approach of just – relentless demonization of your enemy uh, or you're not you're not even your enemy really like the, the other person trying to represent constituents in your district i don't think the people who do this really feel bad i, I think they just want to be public figures and have attention placed upon them you know i don't think pete ricketts has felt bad for any of the people he's endorsed who went on to do ridiculous things he he only attempts to uh give the impression that he feels bad when it's someone who he already opposed did he feel bad when trump did things i i don't think so well, Herbster does similar things. Well, he's against it, but he's already against Herbster. He's just using that as a reason to be against him even more. Yeah, I, I think they'll make excuses for anyone they associate with if they think it's favorable to them. It sometimes does come a point where um, the negativity could splash back onto them and they start to distance themselves. Like when the you know party was basically telling Fortenberry to resign and, and you know they were pushing flood. Short of that, I, I don't think they... They feel bad unless if it has some sort of repercussions for them politically down the road. Well, so let, let's talk about Fortenberry then. So he uh, was convicted on federal charges related to illegal campaign contributions and then lying to the FBI about it. But up until his resignation, he was leading in the polls against his Republic, Republican primary challenger, Mike Flood. And he was still way ahead of Democratic challengers, Patty Panzing Brooks and Jazari Kual Zakaria. And so, like, I see a few options for how to interpret that. Either Nebraska voters don't care that much about illegal campaign contributions or lying to the FBI, or maybe they just don't pay attention to the news about the representatives. It's just not a big deal. Or, I mean, is this the Donald Trump approach to people like Roy Moore, that even a criminal Republican is better than a Democrat? Like, what what, what do you attribute that to? Well, there's also a lot of habit involved. Just the percentage of races that incumbents win across the U.S. is crazy high. Like, even when it's an incompetent incumbent or uh, a lowly effective incumbent who's never got, like, their own sponsored legislation passed, they'll still win like the vast majority of the time, um, it, it's almost like a self-perpetuating machine. And Fortenberry had been in office for uh, over a decade. And a lot of those voters were probably just going to habitually mark his name as they had been doing. But... Um, well, there, why, why, um, why, why would they do that if, <laughs> if, if there's problems? And even if, even in like the entertaining ourselves, like we're, it's all yeah. just big entertainment... You're not that invested in Jeff Fortenberry, probably. No, right? they're they're much less invested in Jeff Fortenberry than they are in uh, the third string Husker quarterback this season. Right. So, I I don't think it matters that much to to a lot of the people who um, just are signing his name and move on. Uh, you know, it's very tribal. Like you you are with this Republican establishment, and if they're putting forth the candidate that they've been putting forth, you ride or die with them, um, which is not a great way to run a society. But that's what voting patterns would tell me, given how easily reelected most of them get outside of the second district. That is, you know, they always face a tough challenge in the second district. But uh, man, what has Adrian Smith ever done for 
CD3. Like, what legislation has he ever got passed for them? But he'll be up there until the day he dies if he wants to be. Um, I see, you know, there's a lot of inertia and people don't care enough to put, uh, to, you know, vote for someone else or uh, hold those accountable who they keep putting forth. Well, so, yeah, I mean, that, maybe that, they don't think they can do anything for them, too. I think there's a lot of that, too. Well, yeah, I mean, like if there's no real expectation of uh, the, the from somebody who is elected, who is an incumbent, who has a safe seat, if there's not really an expectation of being held accountable for anything or not really an expectation of being of there being really much scrutiny or much of a, a serious challenge to them, then the whole constituency model kind of breaks down. Right. Because now there's not really that much incentive to even care that much about your district. Yeah. And uh, the district, you know, what people do for their particular districts is becoming um, less important, too. Uh, you know, it's so uh, nationalized, like the legislation they sponsor, even there's less carving out things for your for your own district. And I know there's earmarking's got a bad name and it has come back to some degree, but it, it's not what it used to be. And, and when there were big earmarks, that was when people like uh, Ben Nelson could carve a a local platform and actually do something for his constituents um, in Nebraska. But now, um, you know, people like Adrian Smith are just out there to vote for whatever is on the national agenda, you know, whether that's blocking gun control or bringing prayer in school or whatever the thing is at the docket that day. Well, so I know Ben Nelson, uh, when he in essentially being the deciding vote for the Affordable Care Act was able to, I mean, so the generous way I would say he's fighting for his district. He's seeing what else he can get for it. The less generous way that it was criticized was that it seems almost bribey to say sort of like, well, I'm going to be kind of the difficult person who's not going to give you that last <laughs> vote unless you give me something I want. Right. I don't know that. I guess was, was that that healthy of a, of a dynamic either? I think it's healthier than this, though. Uh, Nelson's Cornhusker kickback reminds me now of Ricketts rejecting this rent aid. I mean, you know, why are we rejecting federal money? Why is it controversial to to get a kickback for your own district? If if you're bringing money in, whether that's helping people pay for health insurance or helping landlords get paid because, uh, you know, individuals don't have the money for it during an economic recession, uh, why fight that? But um, these things are always portrayed in a real terrible light as if, like, they're going to fundamentally alter the U.S. Treasury. Well, and I think another issue that sort of comes up a lot in your book, and I think you maybe want to get into today, which is that uh, if we have this model where the way that loyalty to parties in a polarized climate doesn't really put a lot of incentive for providing things to constituents, there's kind of another constituency uh, arrangement that's been set up, which at least that's the way I sort of see it now in terms of money in politics, in particular in the sense of deregulated campaign financing and the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision, which does come up in your book. So maybe just for my listeners, if somebody's not familiar with what all that means, can you give a brief explanation of what dark money is and what it has to do in our politics? Well, dark money is um, untraceable uh, campaign funds, basically. A lot of times it's by groups uh, that are national, that are around a particular issue, whether that's uh, like, you know, gun control or abortion access, or um, maybe they want to end government spending on health care. And uh, they don't disclose anything, but they flood the airwaves and mailboxes with attack ads. So it doesn't get tied back to a particular donor or a particular candidate, but it can really sink 
someone's ability to win an election and all the way down to the local level. So like in the state legislature, uh, around the time that the death penalty was briefly repealed, those who voted against the governor were just onslaughted with tons of these attack ads, but you, you couldn't trace them in a way that you would trace a, a normal ad that's on the television that's a campaign ad for Pete Ricketts, or that's an ad paid for by the Nebraska Republican Party. These are groups with addresses uh, in, in Virginia or Washington or, or Florida that have no care for the state where they're spending money in. They just want to rally animus toward whatever uh, person is voting against their particular pet issue. But there's so much obfuscation that people who are watching those ads or, or receiving them in the mail don't really have a view into the incentives of why they're being told these things. And, and that's what's really damaging is um, it starts a lot of vitriol and um, just meanness into political races from people who uh, don't care about local politics. They just care about that one issue. And there used to be more control on this, but the spending has proliferated because a series of Supreme Court and federal court decisions, Citizen United being the most prominent, but there have been other, have just continually deregulated campaign finance. And keep in mind, these laws were enacted in the first place because of the influence of robber barons, uh, you know, back like in the Gilded Age and uh, everything that happened in Watergate. A lot of these were uh, due to the corruption of Watergate, but we're continually gutting them. And it's making our races more nationalized and more beholden to people who uh, aren't in the public spotlight. You know, like Trees of Liberty uh, is never going to be uh, held accountable because you don't even know who ran that attack ad. And the best you can do is try to piece together information from uh, their public IRS uh, reports, but even those don't have much information and they don't really, they're not really required to reveal a whole lot there. What was the Supreme Court's justification in eliminating some of that trail and then just sort of the general regulation and accountability? Well, they use free speech generally. So it's like the free speech of, you know, a corporation or a nonprofit group to spend as much as they want to uh, be as anonymous as they want and to say what they feel. Uh, these things are usually argued on free speech grounds in favor of uh, anonymity and um, reducing limits on spending. I'm talking with Ross Benish, author of Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold, about the rocky start to 2022 for the GOP here in Nebraska, which has been full of scandals, a federal conviction, resignations, and infighting. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Make sure to check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. And while you're there, please leave us a review. In 2021, Ross Benish's book, Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold, argued that partisanship can boost voter turnout and drive people to work on campaigns and engage in public discourse. But at the extreme level we're seeing, partisanship is closing minds and intensifying people's animosity while making it difficult for elected officials to compromise on anything. Today, Benish is here to assess the current state of Nebraska's Republican Party in a year that seems rockier than usual for them. Here's the rest of our conversation. Well, so another person then that sort of uh, comes up a lot 
recently, at least this year in terms of dark money, is Ginny Thomas, who is the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, I know Jane Mayer is one of the most prominent journalists uh, chronicling dark money. She wrote a book called that. And she asked in January in The New Yorker, essentially, if Ginny Thomas uh, is a threat to the Supreme Court because of her ties to certain groups and dark money. So, I mean, what, what is the situation with Ginny Thomas? How does she tie into some of these, uh, these concepts? Well, Ginny uh, Thomas has been involved with numerous um, conservative political groups um, that, uh, like, you know, so some, some of them are a little more mainstream, like heritage. Uh, some of them are, are uh, more fringe. And um, she has been, you know, involved with fundraisers for them. Uh, she's worked with some of them in the past. And she lobbies her access to her husband um, to get the attention of these people. And she also um, uses her position as uh, someone who is connected to dark money groups and someone who's intimately connected to a, a Supreme Court justice to um, have the ear of the president, to have the ear of the president's staff, to urge whatever is on her lunatic fringe mind at the moment, whether that's overthrowing an election or um, saying that school shootings are a hoax. She's um, bought into numerous conspiracies um, and until the last few years has been able to keep a lot of that under wraps, but she also isn't that great at concealing it. She, she posts some of these things on Facebook groups for these, uh, organizations. And that's how some of these messages have been tracked even before the January 6th commission. What was her ties to January 6th? Well, she's, uh, She's basically they've basically uncovered texts where she's been encouraging people like Mark Meadows, who worked with the president, to um, to not uh, follow the will of the people, to not certify the election. Like, and she frames it all in like a very um, warlike metaphors. Like, this is our cause, this is our fight. They can't take this away from us. And she's like really ramping up. Um, the paranoia. And she also uh, was supportive of many of those so-called patriot groups that, that held the rally in the first place leading up to it. But even after um, it took place, some of those texts that have been revealed um, that she sent to Mark Meadows and others um, are pretty damning. And, um, you know, it's kind of terrifying that her husband has a lot of her same views and he has a, you know, a lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court. There's not, and there's nothing you can really do about that. Well, yeah, I think that's that's something I'm thinking, like when you're talking about... And, and usually the spouses of, of Supreme Court justices have not been political activists like this. That's what, what's like crazy about it. Well, and that's, I imagine that's mainly a norm to because it, it might look like there's bias, right? Whereas it's not necessarily based on a system of necessarily tangible accountability. Like you said, you know, the Supreme Court, there's really not a whole lot you can do about behavior on the Supreme Court uh, and people sort of in their orbit. Like when she posts stuff on Facebook, I mean, I guess, is, is there an argument that someone like Ginny Thomas, if she is uh, being very, very involved in these controversial and sometimes, uh, you know, uh, these these sort of controversies that lead to situations like January 6th, like, is there really a reason to feel like there will be a problem in posting about that on Facebook? Like, is there a mechanism even to hold someone like her accountable with the, the connection she has to power, uh, you know, at the Supreme Court at that level? I don't think there is a mechanism right now told someone like that accountable and this is kind of new territory 
uh, like you said, it's not a law, but it is a norm. It's kind of like, you know, there wasn't a law that required presidents to provide their tax returns. That was just the, a norm that was expected. And Trump defied that norm, did not provide his tax returns. It wasn't illegal, but um, it went against the norm. And, and same with this um, political activism. The judiciary is supposed to be independent and it was held on this like lofty ideal so um, significant others of jurists on the supreme court uh you know did not publicly engage in these sorts of activities to uphold that ideal and uh jimmy jenny thomas is, is certainly um you know not uh, sticking to that uh you know tradition um but <laughs> given what we know now it uh if, if this becomes the norm with uh, justices in the future where um, they're partnered with someone who is very active in lobbying for certain things, um, do we want to stick with the way the court's set up? Do we do we stick with lifetime appointments? You know, that's debates been around forever, but now there's like new things happening with it that weren't around 100 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that uh, uh, an issue with changing it is just that people are used to what it looks like now, and they're often resistant to things that look different. <laughs> That's not necessarily that there's a ton of logic behind why it should be this sort of unaccountable lifetime appointment that is not directly chosen by voters. We don't like change. We're still on the U.S. system of measurements, and we still have daylight savings time right now. So people don't like too much change. Well, there's that. And then I think a lot of these problems, particularly when we talk about dark money, there's not a ton of incentive for people who have power, who maybe are enriching themselves due to a lot of the money in politics, right, to shift to something that's more openly ethical uh, and shift to something that has a little bit more accountability, right? Because the mechanisms, they'd almost work against the personal interest of the people who have the power to do something about it. It makes me feel like it's irreversible. Yeah, those in power make the rules to stay in power. That's like a axiom of sociology, it, it certainly applies here. That, that's why when things really do change, it's always so, like, shocking. Like, you know, the Great Depression, when Nebraska moved to a single-house legislature, there were people that were suddenly out of a legislative seat, and that was shocking that, that made that change. Now, the voters made that change. The, the Nebraska legislature would have not voted itself uh, to shrink like that. But uh, you're absolutely right. It, it would... Um, not benefit those in power. You know, it, when Pete Ricketts was governor, if he really wanted to, he could have pushed for some reforms that other states have around uh, campaign spending limitations and, and or, 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 you know, the amount of money you can receive from particular donors. Nebraska has no limit the amount of money you can receive from a certain donor. Um, other states do. But why would he do that? Like he, he receives more money and has more money than anyone. Why would he like do something that's going to hurt his chances? To me, that all kind of feeds into if people aren't really thinking in those terms, if the average you know, constituent, the average voter is much more locked into the, the soap opera of politics or whatever you know, culture war there is, then you're not necessarily focused on the details that look really bad or look corrupt in the system. And then you're maybe less likely to have accountability. And it seems like it's worked out pretty well for people in power to sort of just let uh, the amusement take over, right? That this people would rather be entertained than do the hard work of reforming government. So, I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, do, do you feel pessimistic then about uh, a lot of these trends and that polarization has ultimately won? the war i do feel uh, pretty pessimistic at this juncture I, I was just home uh two weeks ago uh, for a family wedding and i i got a 
see many of the Nebraska governor ads um, in a way that I, I hadn't seen because I hadn't been able to watch much Nebraska local TV. You know, I see stuff on Twitter or YouTube, but it's not quite the same. And they're just beyond ridiculous. There's competitions over who can be the more salt of the earth farmer. This one guy farms pigs. This other guy farms another type of livestock. And there was uh, nothing of substance in any of the ads I saw between Herbster and Pillen. And yet one of those guys will likely be governor. That's kind of depressing. I mean, that's where when we get back to this idea that it seems like Nebraska's in a pretty good spot for Republicans in general. There's been a lot of infighting over the governor's race because Governor Ricketts does not seem to like Herbster. Uh, he likes Pillen. And so it's been kind of this, uh, you know, this situation where uh, it's fairly heated. I mean, do you think that the the sort of mess of messaging and the mess of endorsements, does that make any difference in terms of like overall Republican unity here? Uh, in, in the primary, it will make it more fractured, but I think there will still be Republican unity in the general. But, you know, in, in Nebraska, even re- recent history, um, sometimes those people who are the favorites have um, attacked each other and like a in a way that allows like a third or fourth candidate to emerge. You know, Ricketts wasn't the favorite when, when he ran. Uh, Fortenberry wasn't the favorite when he was going to replace Doug B. Ryder. You know, th- there's several examples like that. So th- this war that uh, this campaign, you know, um, thing that Herbster and Pillen have against each other could pave the way for someone like Lindstrom. But whoever emerges from that primary, I think, is still going to cruise in the general, even though uh, Carol Blood is a qualified candidate, more more qualified than any of the Republican candidates, from what I can tell. But the voter registration is just so heavily in their favor. It almost take like a Roar Moore saga for them to have a possibility at losing it. Well, they, I mean, they might have one of those. I mean, we're, we're... Oh, yeah, Herbster wins, yeah. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Ross Benish, author of Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. What do you think? Is Nebraska's Republican stronghold on looser footing than normal? Will that ever happen? Is that a possibility even? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which may be featured on one of our upcoming shows. So um, you wanted to come out here to some extent to talk about State Senator Bruce Bostelman, who, as I understand it, sort of, I don't know if he got confused or was sort of intentionally uh, confident about uh, an unsubstantiated Facebook post that claimed that public schools are bending over backward to accommodate children who identify as furries. Uh, and in a legislative debate, his exact quote here was, they meow and they bark and they interact with their teachers, and now schools are wanting to put litter boxes in the schools for these children to use. How is this sanitary? Um, and so, like, other than kind of just abysmal media literacy from someone who writes our laws, like, what, what's even going on there? What, what is he talking about? How does it relate to the culture war? Well, uh, there's <laughs> a lot to unpack there. Uh, Bruce Bostelman's uh, wife used to be on the school board at East Butler, where I went to high school. And you would think maybe he would get public inform- you'd get the information about public schools from her. But uh, instead, he relied on these fringe Facebook groups. And uh, I-, I think he thought there was like a like a gotcha moment there because he's, he's a continually attacked public education. Um, like he I remember one transcript I read when I was researching rural rebellion where Bostelman was coming after the university for keeping lights on Memorial Stadium's field when it was dark out. You're saying, why are we wasting all this taxpayer money? Of course, they do it for security purposes. But that was just an example of how he would you know, pick at public education instit- in- institutions. 
And I guess he saw something on Facebook uh, about furries uh, <laughs> that was clearly not substantiated and thought I have something there. Because when he's on when he's in that speech, you watch it. He's very earnest. You know, he's like um, Nebraska Board of Education. What are you doing about this? You know, superintendent such and such. What are you doing about this? It's like very uh, uh, sincere and earnest. Like he, he thought he, he had this like smoking gun. And uh, it's just how desperate he was to pick at public education. So that's how it plays in the culture wars is the GOP's coming after public education. Bostelman uh, was recruited by the party in Ricketts. Uh, this was to overthrow Jerry Johnson, who voted against Ricketts on the death penalty. And since he's been in office, he's just kind of done whatever the national P- GOP agenda is. You know, if that's pick at public education, he'll talk about furries. If that's uh, gut our public power board to give more control of it to the governor, he'll do that too. You know, he's just kind of there to to be a patsy and amuse us all from time to time. Well, a question I have as far as that goes is we, we've talked throughout this conversation about how a lot of the rhetoric used in polarizing and continuing to keep everything polarized, it, it doesn't necessarily come from passion on the issues or a passionate hatred of the other side. It's sort of just like it's going to be dramatic because people like drama. In a situation like Bostelman's here, does I mean, is it just sort of like maybe it starts from kind of just like a, these are the words, these are sort of the, the key arguments that I need to make sure that I hit on. Uh, but then like if you're just consuming so much of this information from Facebook groups or wherever else, it just like you start to buy into it. Does it go from something that's sort of cynical and calculated to I guess this is all real and I guess the Facebook guy is right about the litter boxes? You know, I, I don't know. Um, maybe they don't view it as sinister. You know, they they did they just view it as the this is what the organization I belong to wants, and this is what I do to uh, appease them. And you know, from time to time, yeah, I get caught up in a hoax. Um, I guess <laughs> I'm not a speechwriter for him, or I have any insight into um, what goes on in his mind. But wow, uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm kind of tongue tied right now. I'm, you're trying to I'm trying to explain to you how he could get to this point and, and the answer is honestly i don't know okay fair enough because it's, it's, it's just so ridiculous <laughs> well okay so th- the broader idea there that this, this is part of a an a, pub- a republican attempt to dismantle funds and some of the structures of public education what's the motivation behind that well uh it's there's been a lot of attack of public institutions in general from the republican party but schools in general uh they, they people don't want to pay taxes in the you know Republican Party. There's a there's a large wealthy donor base who does not want to pay taxes, and if they can lower their taxes by reducing, um, you know, the amount of money that the university gets or that K through 12 gets, they're all for it because you know what they'll send their kids to private school anyways because they don't want to associate with the riffraff. Um, that really comes from the from national groups like Americans for Prosperity really been about school choice, school vouchers against public education. Uh, instead of coming at it directly, though, they, they use it as this culture war thing. Um, you know, this furry thing, which I want to be clear, I, I don't have any problem against furries, like actual furries. You know, like if you're an adult, you can consent and do all sorts of things. If that's what does it for you, that's fine. But don't go on the legislature floor and say this is what's happening in schools because it clearly... Uh, is not the case. 
But well, um, but it's effective oh, to say something like that, right? So like, yeah, yeah it's, it's, a effective. Bomb it's effective. Out. It's effective to, to to come at public education with uh, these sensational stories. Uh, it's like the Turning Point USA thing with the university several years ago. If the governor and his allies in the state and the state legislature uh, wanted to reduce spending uh, with the university because there was a revenue shortfall at the time, you know, they could have laid out arguments on this is how much we spend on the university. Do we need to be doing that much? Well, if you do that, people are probably going to support the university because it does a lot of good. It employs a lot of people, people like the Huskers. That's a hard sell. But if you go, oh, there's liberal professors who are flipping off students and, and shaming them, and, and that's what this university is, well, people are going to be more receptive to cutting their budget if you float it out there like that. So uh, if you want, you know, there's been petitions out there to get rid of the Nebraska Board of Education. Nebraskans like their public education. Uh, we have one of the highest high school graduation rates in the United States. People support their public schools, especially in small towns where it really holds the town together. You want to pick out the school directly, that's tough. But if you want to say that they're disrespecting the flag or they're uh, letting kids dress up as cats, if you can actually get people to believe that, then they'll be more likely to join your cause in gutting that institution to you know lower taxes for people who want to ultimately send their kids to private school anyways yeah i mean a lot of this it sort of seems to be republicans in nebraska at least uh one of the measures of their success is ability to utilize media strategies to utilize some of that entertainment uh that we're talking about so like this idea people want to be amused they want to be part of the drama and so like how do you make the drama work for your end even if the correlation is not exactly like you're not directly pointing out exactly what it is that you have a problem with or what your end game is but you can find a way to say it that works within our sort of entertainment infrastructure of politics and so like i I guess the broader philosophical question here is do people are, are people really like would they prefer to have actual truth or is entertainment ultimately the best bet? And in other words, should Democrats maybe get better at working the entertainment system as opposed to trying to maybe just point <laughs> out problems with Republicans? Uh, the, the little bit of sugar goes a long way, unfortunately. I, I think we're getting more into the the entertainment side. Uh, and that was already happening before Trump, but he, he certainly um, – you know, threw some flame on that fire. So what does that look like? Do you think there's like, are, are Democrats utilizing new strategies in Nebraska at this point? Well, they're in a tough position in, in Nebraska. They just have so much, um, like going against them nationally. You know, they, uh, there's a lot of sentiment that's against the Nebraska. I mean, there's a lot of, um, negative sentiment against the national democratic party when races are nationalized, that makes it tough for the locals. Uh, the voter registration is not in their favor. The the donors certainly aren't in their favor. The big businesses are going to donate more to the Republicans, especially now that they're more likely to win in those states. So I, I, there's probably not a ton they can do to flip that lever in the short term. But in the long term, improving the slate of candidates will alleviate some of that pressure. There's better candidates on this slate than there was the last two slates, um, you know, with like Tony Vargas for CD2 and um, you mentioned Pansy and Brooks and, and, and Carol Blood, you know, they went and actually got like a, a reliable Democrat um, early on. So I think there is some improvement on, on that angle, but I think they're limited in how effective they can be. And I say it's a national party because, you know, same things happen in North Dakota, South Dakota, all over that region, Iowa. 
you know, becoming more red. Yeah, so I want to end on a question that I basically ask some version of it almost every episode, to, to the extent that people make fun of me for asking it so much. But I feel like I never get a convincing answer. Uh, even I directly asked Ben Nelson this, and I still got really nothing. But okay, so do political parties in America have tangible benefits to offer? Like, do we actually need them, or are they basically just a foundation of raising money that we sort of allow to take over our politics? Well, the one benefit is they do give a shorthand of what the candidate likely stands for. You know, a lot of people are low information voters, and um, if if we had no parties or a million different parties, it would probably be tough to know where does this particular candidate stand on a policy like uh, gun control or oil prices or public education uh, if you didn't have those um, markers like R&D. But what's happened is instead of those being like indicators of where a person might stand, they it becomes like all-consuming and uh, you know you really put someone in a box for for better or for worse depending on if they align with your your party now. Um, we don't really have any the, the more rigid you know the way we define those terms and the way we perceive a candidate based on which letter they have to their name. But they could be useful uh, like in a directional way. In the same way, like going to like a, a record store. If there was no, it'd be ideal world that there'd be no music genres. But if you like went to a record store and you were like, I really want uh, to buy ACDC back in black. Where am I going to find this in the store without uh, something called rock and roll? You know, like it, it can be helpful in a shorthand way like that, but it's gone in a extreme direction. That's helpful. I like that. Uh, well, you know, it occurs to me when you're talking about like we'd have to actually uh, essentially do some homework on candidates to figure out what they think about things if we didn't just have R&D. You know, I, I get that it gets messier, but at the same time, it seems like it might be useful for at least candidates to have to decide what they think about things and be able to define that and find ways to talk about it instead of just saying like I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. So that's 90 percent of the way that's 90 percent of the information right there. Uh, yeah, you know, and if people had more leeway to decide themselves, you would see more candidates like uh, like John McAllister in the state legislature, or you know, like Ben Nelson, who um, you know, McAllister isn't re- really like your typical Republican. Ben Nelson was different from your typical Democrat in a lot of ways. Uh, those types of candidates are, are harder to, to find now as those you know party labels become more rigid. But oftentimes, those types of candidates end up being the most effective ones. I think that's a good note for us to end on. So I know you've got the book, Rural Rebellion, that's out and available. Are there any other things you want to plug while I have you here? No, no other things. I I, I got two great hound dogs. I always love to give a (laughs) shout out, Cooper and Delilah. Nothing else aside from Rural Rebellion and my great hounds. Well, I appreciate you coming back on. Thanks, Ross. Thanks for having me on. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.